0: Please turn with me to Mark chapter 13. It's page 849, and the Bible's there in the chairs. Mark chapter 13. This morning we're going to deal with uh, just ver- the first 13 verses, 1 through 13. But in our series, we've been walking through the Gospel of Mark. We come to a very, very interesting chapter, chapter that I've kind of been not so eager to get to, to be quite honest with you. It's a chapter that's filled with um, all sorts of scrutiny and ambiguous language. It's been highly debated. People interpret it all sorts of ways. And so uh, coming up to this text, man, I was just like, how am I going to be able to properly explain and properly apply to you guys without being caught up in all this stuff? You see, in Mark chapter 13, we have Jesus predicting the destruction of the temple. He speaks of wars and earthquakes and famines. He tells of persecution and horrible tribulation to come. He exhorts believers to watch out for this abomination of desolation who finds himself standing where he ought not be. Jesus tells us of cosmic shifts, that the sun and moon are darkened, that stars fall from heavens and that the very powers of the heavens are shaken. And he tells us of the glory of the coming Son of Man who comes in the clouds of heaven. This is a a passage of great upheaval and cosmic change. It's a passage of great promise, but also of great pain. And a passage that, as I described it just now, has immediately placed you, more than likely, in one of two camps. Okay? Either... You get really excited about this kind of stuff. Oh, we're talking about end times. I can't wait. I want to know what this means. I want to know how to interpret this. I want to know when the end's going to come. What does this mean? What does that mean? Who is the, the abomination of desolation, right? What do I, what do I need to do? Do I need to, do I need to go up and stand on a hill and wait for Jesus to come back? Do I need to, to do all that I can to make it happen by proclaiming the gospel? What do I need to do? What does this mean? How do I apply Or you're the opposite extreme, and you could just care less. Why even bother? We can't understand this stuff. It doesn't really matter. Or dare you even say, who cares? Neither of these camps are healthy places to be. You need to understand right from the get-go that Jesus did not give us Mark 13 so that we can go out and we can grab our newspapers, and we can do all sorts of mathematic equations and try to interpret the end of times. He's not concerned about us deciphering who and what these things are and when they're going to happen. I mean, you could just forget about that prophecy section that you find in so many local Christian bookstores. I can guarantee you that they're wrong. Okay? Don't waste your time. Don't waste your money. I mean, we need to learn something from Harold Camping, don't we? right just need to give up okay the point is not to determine the date so that we can wait till that last possible second to kind of get our lives in order or maybe even do something really radical like sell all that we have and go stand up on a hill in white robes just kind of waiting the day till Jesus comes back he's not calling us to be exclusionists and separatists and just kind of just endure the day, endure the here and now, just waiting for that day to come. Oh man, I hope the Mayans were right, that it really was December 12th, 2012, or whatever the date is, 21st maybe, I don't know. I don't know, it'll come and pass, we'll see. (coughs) But neither is it okay for us to just ignore it, and to go through life as those who are asleep, who are completely oblivious to... God's purposes and direction that He is drawing out this world. He has a direction and we need to follow. This may not be your cup of tea. I can tell you right out, it's not mine. It's not. But it's God's Word. And it's worthy of our attention. God gave us this chapter for our good so that we would be watchful. And so over the next few weeks, we are going to treat Mark 13 as sort of a mini-series where we draw out this one unifying theme of the entire chapter, which is watchfulness. We need to be watchful. This passage is ultimately a call to stand guard and to stay awake. Jesus exhorts us to see, to behold, to understand. He does that in verse 5, 14, and 29. He says, do not be alarmed in verse 7. Be on guard in verse 9, verse 23, and verse 33. Do not be anxious in verse 11, and to stay awake in verses 33, 35, and 37. The point of this chapter is not to attempt to predict the return of Christ but to remain watchful. Jesus predicts the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in order to encourage and comfort and strengthen believers, to strengthen His disciples who are facing hardship and affliction so that they might remain watchful even in the face of persecution. This morning we're going to look at just the first 13 verses. Though I debated, should we read the whole thing? For now we're not. Maybe I'll regret that. We'll see. and I'm gonna break it up into two sections. Jesus' prediction of the destruction of the temple in verses one through four and the call to perseverance in verses five through thirteen. You see, Jesus predicts the future of the temple to help his followers to persevere. So again, please read along with me. Mark thirteen, one through thirteen. Again it's page eight forty nine in the Bible's there. It says, and as Jesus came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all of these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he. And they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. This passage focuses on a prediction and a call to persevere. In verses 1-4, through Jesus predicts the destruction of the temple, but His prediction proves that He is the Son of God. Now verse 1, it picks up with Jesus and His disciples leaving the temple. Jesus has been there for over two chapters, since 11, verse 27. Remember, this is Tuesday of Passion Week. A lot has happened on this day. This day started early in chapter 11, verse 20, as Jesus and His disciples made their way from the town of Bethany where they were staying back into Jerusalem. And you remember, as they were walking, Peter looks over and he sees a fig tree that's been withered to its roots. And just a day earlier, Jesus had predicted, He had gone to that fig tree for, for figs, for something to eat, it bore no fruit, and so he cursed it. May fruit never grow from you again. And he went in at that point to the temple, and he did the same thing to the temple, and overturning the tables there. And what we see is that, or what we saw back then in chapter 11, is that Jesus did that. Jesus cursed the temple, or I'm sorry, cursed the fig tree as an illustration of what he was going to do to the temple. Jesus cursed the fig tree and it withered to show that Jesus cursed the temple and that it too would wither. Right? That's ultimately the point. Jesus is cursing the worship there. It's an illustration. And so after they saw that withered fig tree, Jesus and his disciples, they entered the temple and they were immediately confronted by the religious leaders who questioned Jesus and Jesus subsequently condemns the religious leaders of the day because they're not concerned about the flock they're not concerned about right worship they're only concerned about feeding themselves and exalting themselves and so we've seen that as we've gone through chapter 11 verse 27 through the end of chapter 12 that Jesus he condemns the temple he condemns the worship of the temple He condemns the religious leaders of the temple. I want to be really clear here. Jesus has just spent the bigger part of the last two chapters condemning the temple and all things associated with it. All right? The disciples should have got this. They should have understood. They've been walking around with Jesus for three years, and and he has been predicting this or leading up to this for the better part of that. I mean, Jesus is no stranger to the religious leaders who have accused him and are are out against him, right? This, This is not strange. They ought to know. And so it's kind of ironic that after Jesus had just condemned the worship and the temple and the religious leaders, that one of his disciples would walk out of the temple and say, look, teacher, what marvelous buildings, what marvelous structures. Do you see this place? It's fantastic. Can you believe it? I'm like, can you believe it? What are you doing? Are you kidding me? Jesus has just condemned this, and you're saying, hey, that's great, man. That's awesome. I don't know if he's trying to get it. Hey, maybe you ought to rethink this. This is a pretty great building. But what an indicator it is that how enamored we can be with things that do not matter to God. Now, the temple was impressive. I've got a slide up here if you wouldn't mind clicking over to that. Um, I drew this up. From the ESV Study Bible. <laughs> see, I got you guys, right? All right. Yeah, this is from the ESV Study Bible. Great resource, by the way. Um, also, Justin Taylor in his blog, you can get to it through thegospelcoalition.org. On his blog, he just posted a simulation. It's a video simulation. It's like eight minutes where it basically takes you in and through and around and over the temple. And you can see just how impressive this building really was. I mean, it was, it was gigantic. Right, measuring 325 meters wide by 500 uh, meters long, it was nearly a mile around. If you walked around the edges, it was a mile. Okay? It actually took up one-sixth of the land space of Jerusalem. Like one-sixth of the city is devoted to this gigantic structure. This would be, like in Champaign-Urbana, this would be the equivalent of the University of Illinois being one gigantic building, right? And you just think in terms of comparison there. It was 35 acres. It could hold 12 football fields, right? This corner right here, this southeast corner that we're looking at here, basically it's a 15-story it's a drop from the top of that down to the bottom of the Kidron Valley. It's gigantic It towered over the skyline, 50 meters above anything else in that city. So it's just like a mountain in and of itself right there in the middle of the city. The stones taken from the Wilson's Arch, which is kind of this bridge right up there, right here. This is basically only only parts of this structure in the wall right there remain. Everything else has been removed. But some of the stones in that arch there were 45 meters long. They were, I mean, sorry, 45 feet long, 11 and a half feet tall, 12 feet wide, and weighed over a million pounds apiece. We I mean, think about what it took to place those stones in that day. I mean, this is an architectural feat. This is a phenomenon. So it's no, no wonder that, that the disciples were impressed by it. And no wonder that they viewed this temple as basically indestructible. They thought that this is a permanent staple in their society. Again, I said it towered above the rest of the skyline and one commentator described it as a visual collage of gold and silver, crimson and purple, radiating the rising sun like a snow-clad mountain. So we shouldn't really be surprised that the disciples stood in awe of it. But I've got to remind you, ornate buildings do not make worship pleasing to God. Or lack of a building altogether for that matter. (laughs) They might give us a sense of awe and wonder. We might feel a real sense of security because we've got this place that we can go to. But But the reality is that means nothing to God. And in fact, in this case, God detests it. God can detest that kind of worship. Because here's the thing. And the disciples kind of key us into this. Are they worshiping God or are they worshiping the structure? Right? Are, are they really worshiping God for who he says he is or is it just part of the whole ambiance of it all? Is it just kind of the awe and wonder that surrounds the building and surrounds all the rituals and all the smells and all the sights and all the crowds and all the things that kind of come into that? What are they really worshiping there? And you see throughout the course of Israel's history that they are not the first ones to worship a temple. Right? The first temple was built by King Solomon, right? And, and it was 586 B.C. wasn't that much long later, in about 400 years or so, that God destroys that temple because they began to worship the temple. The people had turned away from God. And even though they were still performing their rituals, even though they were still going to church, in a sense... God was displeased with it, and in five eighty six he destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. They remained in exile for seventy years, they crawled back finally. God allows them to build a second temple, right? Zerubbabel built this temple, and it was pathetic compared to Solomon's temple. It really was. I mean, you got Haggai, you got people, they're crying, the elders are crying because they remembered how great the temple was, Solomon's temple was, but this one is this foundation is horrible. But even there, the people continued to worship themselves and worship worship and worship their building or whatever. And so in 186, 187 B.C., Antioch Epiphanes, he came in and he decimated that temple. He, he, he performed a blasphemy by slaughtering a pig. We'll kind of get into that next time and all this stuff as well, but he basically destroyed it. I mean, there's a little bit of the structure remained, but the thing was virtually torn down. And it remained that way from 186, 187 to 20 BC, when Herod the Great began to rebuild this temple. Just 16 years before the birth of Jesus, you have this temple beginning to be rebuilt. This one was twice the size of Solomon's temple, right? and every bit is grand. So it probably took people half of the time to then begin to worship the temple instead of, of, of worshiping God. You see, even though this was grand, even though this is great, um, even though these stones were huge, this has become a stumbling block to the people. This was actually a tumor on the city of God. This was malignant. It was cancerous. and needed to be removed. They worship the temple, they worship their nation, they worship themselves, they worship worship. But they weren't worshiping God. And so Jesus responds to his disciples in verse two You see these great buildings? You take a look at that. You see those great buildings? There will not be one, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. All that you admire, all that you adore, all that you love and find fascinating about this building, it's all gone every brick will be removed. Every stone will be taken down. Not a single block will remain. And this is key. This verse 2 is key to understanding all of chapter 13. If you miss this, if you lose sight of this, you're going to begin to speculate into all sorts of stuff. But it locked in right here. Jesus predicts the total and utter destruction of the temple. And this is a remarkable prediction. No one else... We don't have a single other recorded prophecy predicting the destruction of the temple, let alone saying that it will be dismantled brick by brick. Not one stone will be left upon another. And you know what? That's exactly what happened. Jesus was the only person that ever made this prediction, and it happened completely as He said it would. In 70 A.D., just Forty years after Jesus made this prediction, the Romans came in to squash an uprising. And they laid siege to Jerusalem for three years. No one came in or out until Jerusalem was basically decimated by a fire. And we'll get into that next week as like what that looks like. And how that was fulfilled. But no single but, but they ended up coming in and they dismantled the temple, that there was no single stone of the temple that remained on another. They completely wiped it out. Jesus' prediction was fulfilled perfectly. Who would have guessed that these million pound stones would have been removed one by one, by another, and by another? Jesus did. This leads skeptics to argue that Mark must have been written after the destruction of the temple. I mean, who could have known that that's exactly what would happen? Who could have predicted such a thing? But the reality is there's no internal evidence to support that claim at all. And that claim is based upon a denial of the supernatural. This couldn't possibly be the case. It couldn't possibly be the case that Jesus predicts the future. Well, God tells us throughout Scripture that the way that you know that he's God is because he predicts the future. He tells you things that happen so that you can identify him apart from false gods, apart from idols. This is one of the ways that you know. But even if you doubted Mark, you have to know that Jesus' prophecy is really a continuation of the prophecy of Micah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Zechariah. They all talk about the destruction of Jerusalem. They all tie it to the temple and to the Mount of Olives and all of this. Jesus is really just continuing this thought. God tells us the future so that we know that he's not like false gods. And even Jesus himself in John chapter 11 says, And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. The very reason Jesus makes this prediction is so that you may believe. His prediction of the destruction of the temple and its fulfillment just a few decades later proves that He is the Son of God. It proves that everything that He says will come true and that we can trust it. He knows what He's doing. We do not have reason to question Jesus being the Son of God. This prophecy and prediction and fulfillment in and of itself is enough to prove to us that Jesus is who He says He is and who He proves Himself to be. Well, the four of His closest disciples weren't so easily convinced. And so in verse 3 it says, And as He sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked Him privately, Tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign when all of these things are about to be accomplished? Okay, so if you were basically to head out the front door there, down the stairs, kind of down the valley, you would then climb up a 300-foot ascent to the top of the Mount of Olives. It was exactly opposite the front of the temple, okay? The Mishnah, which is a Jewish document, actually says that from the Mount of Olives that you could look down even through the very entrance of the sanctuary itself, okay? Okay? so they're they're sitting there and they're looking down upon that temple structure seeing everything perfectly but interestingly enough if you read zechariah 14 god declares the capture sacking and devastation of jerusalem as he sits on the mount of olives and here you have jesus predicting the destruction of the temple and the sack and the capture and the devastation of Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. From the very place of God. You see that. You get that connection. Jesus is assuming the role of God as He sits on the Mount of Olives predicting the demise of Jerusalem. Peter, James, John and Andrew, they ask one question, but it's really two questions. They want to know when. Right? When when will it be the case that one stone does not lay on top of another? Meaning, when will the destruction of the temple happen? Okay, And then what will be the signs that accompany the destruction of the temple? This is what they want to know. These are the two questions that they have. They asked this because they thought that the temple was indestructible. And for the temple to be destroyed meant that the end of the world has come. Right? They saw those things as you could not divide those things out. If the temple is destroyed, that means day of the Lord. That means judgment. That means the end of the world. The age to come is now upon us. All right? They viewed the last days spoken throughout the Old Testament as linear. Now, I, I have a slide. I'm kind of getting geeky. Um, but i got a slide to kind of help you to see this. All right? This is real pretty. Okay. And I'm sorry. I apologize. I didn't have, have a chance to give it to Ben so he could hipster it up. So basically, this is what I got, okay? You've got the destruction of the temple versus the end times. This first line is basically the way that the disciples and the people coming out of the Old Testament would have viewed the, this present age, the last days and the age to come. I'm sorry, my, uh, the tabbing's not right on this. And then, um, and then this is basically how the New Testament fulfills this. And this line should, be, should start right there. I'm sorry, I should have checked that more carefully. This is what happens when you go from a PC to a Mac. Okay? I'm just telling you. My symbols, just so you know, I've got my Star of David here. That represents the Son of David. Okay? All right? The coming of the Christ. This brown cloud is, is basically the destruction of the temple. It goes up in a cloud of dust. Get me? And then this red thunderbolt is basically, I needed something that looked really bad, and that's the, the best I could do with clip art for PowerPoint. So... But you see how they're connected. You see the disciples they saw this present age would be um, would be what they live in now, and it and the last days became ushered in as the Son of David, the Messiah showed up. he would live in that last days and he would Ultimately, the age to come would follow the destruction of the temple and this ultimate day of the Lord, this judgment, right? Where this, this age to come would be there, where God would be with His people once again. That's how they viewed everything, okay? So they couldn't separate out the destruction of the temple from the end times, okay? They saw it as linear. The New Testament presents it somewhere, something completely different. Again, remember my line should start right here. But you've got this present age down here. Last days is supposed to be right here. So I apologize, guys, for that. This is supposed to be way over here. But you've got this present age. But there's an overlap basically between this arrow and this arrow where the last days takes place. And you have the age to come up here, starting with the coming of the Son of David. With the incarnation of Christ. And that last days continues through the life of Christ as he lived that perfectly obedient life, died on the cross. Again, I didn't even have a cross to use for, for my clip art, I'm sorry. You know. Um, and the the resurrection and ascension of Christ here with the up arrow, right? You've got the destruction of the temple here after the fact, and then this last days where there's this overlap between this present age and the age to come taking place until the second coming of the Christ. And then the age to come, the, then you have judgment and the age to come meeting its full and final fruition after Christ returns. The kingdom of God has now been ushered in. But it, uh, it was ushered in with the beginning, with the coming of the King. And it will be fully realized when he comes again. So Jesus is trying to show them, listen, that that destruction of the temple and the the end times, that's not a one for one. Those aren't immediately connected. They're not synonymous. You can't treat them like that. In fact, the, the, the destruction of the temple is actually a foreshadowing of a future ultimate judgment. But the problem, the reason why the disciples couldn't get it is this. They could not separate true worship to God from the temple. The temple was the main thing. Christ was only part of it. The coming of the son of David was only part of it. But the temple was the main thing. And Jesus wanted to show them no that's actually not the case. The the idea of the temple is actually distracting you and turning you away and helping you like causing you to not be able to see the Christ. They only saw Christ as part of the promise, but Jesus says, no, the temple is not everything. Christ is. The Christ is. So the destruction of the temple is not the end of the world. It actually shows us, it serves to show us that a new order, that a new age, that the last days in which the kingdom of God is ushered in has already come. And we need to get that. I'm sorry for we're kind of going seminary and geeky on you for a second there, but it's really foundational for really understanding this passage and really understanding where we fit in God's big story. Okay, If we don't get this, we don't know where we play and, and what's going on. But understanding that helps that the kingdom of God is actually here because the king is near. It's not fully and finally recognized. It will be when he comes again, but not yet. A new day has dawned. But no one realized it. Not even Jesus' disciples. But Jesus proves that it has come with His resurrection and ascension. But He knows that He's going to leave His disciples for a long time before He comes again. And while He's gone, they will face hardship and persecution and difficulty. And things are, are going to be rough. And they're going to begin to wonder why and when. And, and they are begin to lose hope. And so Jesus gives this sign of the prediction of the destruction of the temple so that when it happens they might endure. It's a sign that the kingdom of God has come but not fully yet. It's already but not yet. So why does this matter to us? I know that I've been talking about a lot of information. I apologize. Unfortunately, that's kind of the way that chapter 13 is going to have to go. Settle into it. Learn from it. Let's walk away from it. Okay, But Why does this matter? Well, first of all, we learn here that, for one, that that God is not going to allow anything to steal glory from him. He's not going to allow anything to steal glory. Not idols, not things of this world, not even a temple that had been built for him. All right? So often we find security in tangible things. In material possessions. We rejoice in elaborate buildings and other material comforts and securities. But God is not honored with our worship of buildings or material possessions, but only in our true worship of Him. And this serves as a warning and a promise that God will topple all idols that stand opposed to Him. No matter if they're far off in your worshiping sex or whatever it might be, or even if they're really, really close to Him, in this temple that had been built for Him. God will topple all idols. But the real takeaway from verses 1-4 through is that Jesus is the Son of God. He curses the temple because He's greater than the temple. He's proven Himself to be the authority. He condemns temple worship because He alone is worthy of worship. He tells us ahead of time what will happen so that when it does, we might believe. And He tells us the same thing in chapter 8, and chapter 9, and chapter 10, when He predicted that He would be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes. And they would condemn Him to death and deliver Him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock Him and spit on Him and flog Him and kill Him. And after three days, He will rise again. You see, that prediction and promise and fulfillment continued when He said, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Jesus made these predictions so that you might believe that He is the Son of God, who took on flesh and lived a perfect life, a life that you and I could never live. And He gave up that life by dying on the cross for the ransom of many. To pay the penalty, to pay the weight of our sin, of our rejection, of our rebellion against Him, of our false worship. He rose again three days later to prove that He is who He said He was. That He is the Son of God. And to show us that God's wrath against sin has has been satisfied. That all will be raised to stand before Him in judgment. That the power of penalty and of sin has been paid for. That all will be judged by Him. And He does it all so that we might be reconciled to God. So that we might have our hope and joy in Him. He's removing every stumbling block, every distraction, everything that would take us away from a true and pure worship of God, a focus on Him. This prediction has been fulfilled. The destruction of the temple proves that He's the Son of God. As you see the importance of history, you see the importance of the encouragement that comes from knowing Scripture and knowing when God makes a promise and then when He fulfills it. How amazing that is. That's God's testimony to you that He is who He says He is. That He does what He says that He will do. And that everything that He ever promised will find its fruition. It will come to completion. Those promises are yours. Jesus is the Son of God. So believe in it. So Jesus' prediction of the destruction of the temple proves that he's the Son of God, and He gives us this prediction, second, so that we might persevere. Before I look at go into verses five through thirteen, I need to just take a quick look. We need to remind ourselves of verse fourteen. Okay? Peter, James, and John and Andrew, they want more details on this prediction. They asked when the destruction of the temple will take place, which Jesus is actually going to give us a lot more clues in verses 14 through 23. But they also asked what will be the sign when these things are about to be accomplished, right? They're looking for indicators. They're looking for clues. What signs will accompany this destruction? What signs will be given to show us that the close of this present age and the ushering in of the age to come, and Jesus begins to unpack that question first. He's not dealing with the when as much as he's dealing with the what. Okay, And he tells them what signs will indicate this coming destruction of the temple. In verses 5 through 8, he tells us that one of the signs is deception from false Christs and false prophets who misinterpret contemporary events. And then in verses 9 through 13... Jesus says that one of the signs that they will ex- is that they will experience persecution at the hands of governments and even loved ones. Okay, Now, these are the signs that accompany the destruction of the temple. Now, think about this for a minute. I mean, could you imagine being a disciple at this point? Could you imagine being Peter, James, John, or Andrew? I being, mean, hey, Jesus, when, when is this going to happen? When are these stones going to be removed? When when is the temple going to be destroyed? What signs are you going to give us so we'll kind of know that they're going to happen? He's like, well, let me tell you. People are going to come and they're going to try to deceive you, and you're going to experience a lot of persecution. (laughs) Wow. Thanks. I'm looking forward to that. But in all of this, it's a call to persevere. Let's look at verses 5 through 8. And Jesus began to say to them, see that no one leads you astray. Now remember, he's answering that question. See to it that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he. And they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. They must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines, but These are but the beginning of the birth pains. Jesus flat out warns them. People are going to come, and they're going to claim to be the Christ. They will come in His name. They will say, I am He, which carries that divine weight. He's basically claiming for themselves to have the title and authority of Christ. If you read in verses 21 through 23, he tells them that if anyone says to you, Look, here's the Christ, or Look, there he is, do not believe it. False Christs and false prophets will arise, and they'll perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. Be on your guard. I have told you all things beforehand. Okay? Jesus tells them clearly false messiahs will come, they will perform miracles. They will claim to have my authority. They will claim to have my very name. They will seem to have my power, and they will lead many astray. In verses 7 through 8, we see that they will misinterpret contemporary events in order to bolster support for their wild claims, that they will speak of wars as nation rises against nation, as kingdom against kingdom, and as signs that they are the Messiah who is ushering in the last days. They're going to point to natural disasters, such as earthquakes and famines, to support the idea that they are the Messiah. Right? And Jesus says to them, Do not be led astray. Do not be alarmed by these rumors. This all needs to take place. This all is necessary. But the end is not yet. Remember the picture that I showed you. The end is not yet. These are all the beginning of the birth pains. These wars and earthquakes and famines are only the beginning of contractions of labor, but the birth is still far off, all right? And when he's talking about pregnancy, he doesn't have Kelly and Caleb Billingsley in mind, okay? There's a short. It's it's abnormal. I mean, he's talking about a long time, okay? These are the beginnings of contractions. It's going to take a while, okay? Sorry, guys was not in my notes. (laughs) Uh, Gosh. And again, he says this because these charlatans are using these modern-day circumstances to feed the lie that they are bringing about the end of all things. And these folks, I think, probably to some degree actually believe that. They're kind of lunatics. And this sounds kind of crazy until you think about and you look throughout the course of history like, if you go and you do a simple Google search, or even a Wikipedia search, you know, you'll find that there have been hundreds of people that have made messianic claims. Hundreds of them. Jewish messiahs, Christian messiahs, even Muslim messiahs. Okay? They're everywhere. They're all over the world. Even in the last few decades. Right? We have had many people that have developed messiah complexes. I mean, think about Charles Manson. Right? Think about Jim Jones. Think about David Koresh. Think about Kanye West. Sorry. False messiahs and antichrists have always been present throughout history. They always have. But hear me. Catch this. I don't think Jesus was talking about these latter-day pseudo-Christs. Okay? I don't think he had... Charles Manson in mind. I think he's referring to pretenders who appeared between the time of his death and the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. All right, history shows a number of men who made messianic claims during that time period. I mean, Acts 5 mentions Thutis, or Thudis. sorry. Simon of Goyerus was another one, Judas the Galilean, John of Gishala, and Menahem. All of them made claims to be the Christ during that time period. And even the famous rebellion, the Bar Kokhba rebellion that happened in the 2nd century, Simon Bar Kokhba claimed to be the Christ. Right? All of them believed themselves to be the Messiah. Now some people then, they're like, okay, well, fine, that there were false Christs, but what about the earthquakes? What about the famines? And And what about wars and stuff? Well... Wars and natural disasters have been part of, of human history since the fall of man. This is no exception, right? Sure, these things are continuing on. Sure, there have been wars. Sure, there are natural disasters. But there were during that time period as well. I mean, think about it. The destruction of the temple happened because of an uprising against the Roman Empire. That's why it was destroyed. If that's not a war, I, I'm not sure what is. Earthquakes. Phrygia experienced an earthquake in 61 A.D., ten years, you know, nine years before the temple was destroyed, right? Even Mount Vesuvius, Vesuvius leveled uh, Pompeii, but it gave off tremors that represented earthquakes, right? That's 63 A.D. Natural disasters happen. Even the Bible, you know, you, you've got Agabus in, in Acts 11:28 prophesying of a famine during the days of Claudius, All of these things happened during that time frame. Wars and disasters have been part of history since the fall, and they will continue. And Jesus mentions this, at least here in Mark, in connection with the prediction of the destruction of the temple, not the end times. Another revelation also talks about wars and natural disasters and things of the like. That's a different matter. That's later revelation. We don't need to read that back into Mark. Jesus is predicting the destruction of the temple, but he's telling the disciples that even when it happens, the end is not yet. And his whole point is do not be alarmed or deceived. The end is not yet. These are only the beginnings of the birth pains. The point is not to try to read the events of our day into this prediction. I, I I gotta tell you, I find it really amusing that people often go to this passage to predict the end times, right? They'll take their, their newspapers and they'll take all their contemporary events and they'll go to Mark chapter thirteen and they'll try to predict the end of all things when Jesus is here warning his disciples not to be led astray by those who are misrepresenting or misreading events to try to predict the end times. I mean, do you see the irony? His point is, don't be deceived. This passage was not given to us so that we can predict the end of the world like these false messiahs, but that we would be on guard from them. Do not be deceived. Not only does Jesus warn us that false Christs and false prophets will serve as a sign of the coming destruction of the temple, but He also calls His disciples to persevere under the second accompanying sign, which is persecution. Verses 9-13, through But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings, for my sake, to bear witness before them. Again, Jesus tells them that the coming of the destruction of the temple so that they might not only persevere against deception, but that they might also persevere under persecution. Time and time again, Jesus has warned his disciples of the persecution and hatred that they would experience if they were to follow him. He says in in John 15, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. we have a hard time relating to this, don't we? What persecution do we endure? Earlier today we were just talking about, I don't know if you saw it, uh, Doug Wilson um, gave a talk on the, you know, basically God's design for sex at the University of Indiana, and it turned into a riot. There were protesters. They were asking all these questions. They were getting kicked out. I mean, it was, it was a difficult situation to be in. Now, he did great. The lectures are fantastic. We recommend them, though they're hard to watch. But that's the most, the closest thing we as Americans really experience when it comes to persecution. We don't really relate to this. And we have to go to other places and see other things and know what's happening in the world to really see that this takes place. We're not handed over to governments, but they say they will be. You see that they will be delivered over to councils. They will be beaten in synagogues. Well, there's an important contextual clue. How many Christians today have been beaten in synagogues? You will stand before governors and kings and they will bring you to to trial and deliver you over. Guys, do you know that this happened throughout the book of Acts? It happened perfectly according to that line. I mean, you see that Peter and the other apostles stood before councils. They were beaten in synagogues. You see that Paul was stood before the governors, Felix and Festus, and before the grip of the king. And in each example, we're given in the book of Acts, we see that God was faithful to give them words to speak through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, what this is not, is this is not an allowance for laziness or unpreparedness. Like, I should just... You know, I don't have to worry about preparing a sermon. I'll just come up here and God's going to give me the words to say to you through the power of the Holy Spirit. No, he's talking about when they're on trial, when their life is at risk, when they have the choice, like do I just kind of cop out or kind of scoot around the details in order to save my own skin or am I going to be a faithful witness to these kings and to these governors and to these councils and to these synagogues of who Jesus is even though they might kill me. He's saying in that situation, the Holy Spirit will lead you as to what you were to say in order to fulfill God's purposes, which, guess what, could mean your death. Right, this does not mean that everything is going to go great for you and that you're going to live and die a happy old age. This could mean stoning and beatings. But all in all, God is faithful. If you were His, He will help you to fulfill your purposes as He has for you, as you bear witness to the name of Christ before governing authorities. If you read early church history, you would read stories of early Christians and how they were handed over by loved ones, by brothers, by, by fathers, by children. All were hated by the nations for their claim to follow Christ. And since that time, believers have stood before governments and they've been persecuted by their own family. And again, Jesus' intention is to indicate what the disciples would experience as a sign that His prophecy of the destruction of the temple is true. We can't miss that. It doesn't mean that those things won't continue or that that doesn't have something to say to us, but this is primarily fulfilled already but here's the thing guys for the original audience of Mark who faced persecution at the hands of the Roman government who had been betrayed by their loved ones and hated by all and handed over to death this would have been an amazing comfort I mean, could you imagine being in prison for your faith in Christ is set someone you love has handed you over And you were just kind of waiting to die. It's coming. It's inevitable. And as you wait for your demise in fear and in trembling and in weeping, but in prayer, you get a message that Rome has completely wiped out Jerusalem. That the temple has been destroyed. That even no stone remains upon another. And in that moment you begin to weep because you remember God's promise you remember hearing the gospel of mark how jesus said that these things would happen and how he connected the destruction of the temple with that persecution as a means of persevering and you rejoice you are strengthened in those last moments to persevere in your faith because the word of christ holds true that's its intention and that speaks to us this really happened, if Jesus is who he says he is, if this happened the way that Jesus said it did, which it did, then that's great comfort for us. And we need to hold on to that just as tightly as someone in Mark's day did. This is why Jesus tells his disciples all of this. He's honest with them about the hardships and persecutions that they'll endure. He's honest with them and truthful with them about their deaths. But he gives them that prediction of the end of the temple to help them to persevere when they are hated and when they are tried and even when they are beaten and even when they are put to death. And so Jesus predicts to help us to persevere against deception and under persecution and also to fulfill the mission. Jesus tells them, You will stand before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Guys, our mission is to bear witness to the name of Christ. And we need to be praying for laborers to go out into the harvest field. We are called to proclaim the good news of Jesus to all the nation, to tell them of who He is, that He is the Son of God, to tell them why He came to give His life as a ransom for many. We need to call them to repent, to turn away from their worship of themselves, to follow after Him, and, and the hope and joy of being eternally reconciled to God. And, and we're told that for the events of Chapter 13 to happen, that the gospel must first be proclaimed to all the nations, that it is to go forth everywhere. But oftentimes we get hung up on this one word first, don't we? What if I told you that the gospel has been proclaimed to all the nations? We we often think that, oh man, if, if I want Jesus to come back, then I've got to proclaim. Right? Jesus needs me. i, I got to go do my job. i got to get out there. i got to proclaim to see it come in. Guys, I think that this has already been fulfilled. It's already happened. Again, Book of Acts. That's what Book of Acts is all about. The theme verse for Acts is Acts 1 and 8. 1 and 8. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And as you read through the book of Acts, what you see is that they go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to Rome, which is the ends of the earth, right? That is lived out during the lifetime of these disciples, right? But you also see Paul argue for the same thing, Romans 1, 5 and 8. Romans ten eighteen, Romans fifteen eighteen through twenty four, Romans sixteen twenty six, Colossians one six and one twenty three. All of this have heard. Uh, you have, I'm sorry. All of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you, and as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing. It's Paul's words. The whole world has received the Gospel. The New Testament shows us that it has been proclaimed to the nations in a representative sense. It has gone out by 60 A.D., ten years before the destruction of the Temple. I didn't jump to it, but on, on down, if you keep reading in Mark 13, he says, this generation will not pass away until these things happen. And he means this generation, not mine, right? Not not guys that come after us, but the apostles, his disciples, that generation. This is why one commentator rightly says to interpret to all nations as referring to all the world's people groups is to define what Mark means by this expression through 21st century glasses. And that's our problem, isn't it? We we often, we look at our context, we try to read back into the Bible and to try to extrapolate meaning that God didn't intend. Now, don't hear this and say, well, that job's done. I'm good, okay, don't have to do anything. No, we continue in that because we're still given the Great Commission. We're still given the call to make disciples of all nations. But we need to know that, again, this word of of proclaiming, it must first be proclaimed to the nations is tied to the destruction of the temple, not ushering in the end times. And Jesus doesn't need you to do that. God has a day in mind in which these things will be so. It is definite. It cannot be changed, and Jesus doesn't even know it. We'll get there. This passage is primarily fulfilled in 70 A.D. with the destruction of the temple. It points forward to a greater fulfillment, which is why we continue persevering and fulfilling our mission in their mission of making disciples of all the nations. But we do that in the confidence of knowing that Christ always keeps His Word. And the destruction of the temple is a guarantee of that. It happened. So not only does Jesus' prediction help us to persevere against deception and persecution and to fulfill our mission, it's also given to help us endure to the end. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. If Jesus' prediction of the destruction of the temple didn't come true, if it didn't happen, would we be able to believe anything that he said? Would we be able to trust in the fact that he'll come again? No. But if he did, if he predicted it, and then it happened, and it all went according to the way that he said it does, it proves that he is who he says he is. It proves that he, what He says will happen, will happen. And friends, this ought to strengthen us. This ought to embolden us. This ought to encourage us. If we stick to His Word, we won't be deceived by false Christs and false teachers. We won't misinterpret the signs. We won't deny His name when facing persecution because we are confident in the fact that the Holy Spirit will strengthen us. We will fulfill our mission because we know that He is coming back. And whatever our lot, Christ has taught us to say that it is well with our soul. And so we will endure to the end. His prediction, which has happened, which is done, it is over, it is completed, is a guarantee of that fact so that you and I and everyone who believes in the name of Jesus Christ will persevere to the end. God, that is, that is not less than thinking that we are somehow essential to the gospel. That is the gospel. It's about Him, not about you. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. God, we have to first say, forgive us for, for failing to study it, for just kind of sloughing it off when it doesn't really make sense and kind of moving on to things that we understand more. Or forgive us for just trying to figure it all out, get really engrossed and fascinated and trying to predict, to read in our times into Your Word rather than letting it say what it says. God, we thank You for this prediction and this fulfillment in the destruction of the temple. But I pray that it would cause us to realize that Jesus is the Son of God that He has been vindicated, that He ascends, that He is exalted, that He is reigning at Your right hand upon the clouds of heaven. And I pray that as we live in the midst of this last days, just like Peter and James and John and Andrew, that we will endure, that we will persevere, even if we are being deceived by false teachers or being experiencing persecution. that I pray that we would recognize that you have given us the privilege of proclaiming a gospel that has proven itself to be true. And if we are impassioned, if we are emboldened, if we are excited, then we will endure to the end. And I, I pray for our hearts that we would be changed, that we would be motivated by this. You are who you say you are. You will do what you say that you will do, and we can trust in you. God, help us to persevere by that truth. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.